Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast doesn't really have a specific theme. Uh, it covers a lot of my interests, it co- covers a lot of other people's interests, it goes into philosophy, spirituality, business, uh, how to live a good life, many different things. Ultimately, I don't believe in having themes for the things that we do. We can categorize the things, and obviously we categorize things all the time, uh, but I like to keep things open-ended, a continuous process of discovering the truth as it is. Uh, and the truth is tricky because we can't really get to the truth uh, exactly because the truth is nonlinear. It is, in the words of John Verveke, combinatorially explosive. Uh, even the truth of this window that I'm looking at, the window itself, the glass that makes up the window is combinatorially explosive. The cup that holds your water is combinatorially explosive. You cannot model that cup totally in your head. You're only getting an image of it in with your eyes and your brain. That's not the actual cup itself. Uh, so this, uh, this show is a discovery of truth wherever it may appear by talking to people from various different fields. I've talked to artists, engineers, entrepreneurs, investors, uh, refugees. I've, I've just talking to anybody who has a glimpse into the truth. Uh, and through this conversation, through this mutual inquiry into what is true, what is real, hopefully we get to something that is helpful for to you. Now, we are in a time of crisis right now, uh, but it is in those times of crisis that we find our strength. And so this show hopefully will help you to find the strength that is resting, that is deep inside of you, that is part of your birthright as a human being, uh, and find that strength so that you can get through these difficult times. Also, I want to let you know that I'm offering breathwork sessions uh, every day. I've got seven sessions a day uh, and really excited to bring this to people. People have been really enjoying it and it has brought strength to people and courage. And, and that's, my, that's my goal is to help you find the courage to uh, not only survive, but to thrive in the next couple years, maybe, because this virus is not going away. Um, it, it, usually viruses come in waves. Uh, so this is the first wave, it will go away, and then it might come back. I'm not saying that I know for sure it will come back, but we are in this for the long haul. So this is a uh, marathon, not a sprint, uh, and I want to do everything I can to help you not only survive, but to thrive. Uh, so if you are interested in that, please find me on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, III. My DMs are open. I'd love to hear about what you think about this show. Uh, also, it'd be very, very kind of you to both subscribe to the show on Spotify, Stitcher, uh, iTunes, many of the major pot pl- platforms. And if you're really feeling generous, go ahead and give a review on iTunes. So join me for the breath work. Just send me a message on Twitter at Stuart Alsop III with your email, and I'll add you to the email list where I'm sending out emails for the schedule. Uh, hopefully see you there. Have a great day. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today, my guest is Matt Mireles. He is a serial entrepreneur, a CEO of a new health, a stealth AI startup, and an angel investor. So welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, uh, it's really great. For those of our listeners right now, uh, I'm looking at Matt and he's in his garage and it's, he is in a startup garage. So he's starting his company. In is, is your company being started in, in that garage or? Uh, we're actually fully remote, but um, the company did the start. Part of the start happened here, and I started 
my previous company, Dishcraft Robotics, in this garage. So <laughs> it has meaning for me. Nice. And what, without getting into the specifics of your company, what has been the biggest thing you've learned this time around, seeing as you've done this several times? Um, honestly, having the right team and the right partners just makes life so good. <laughs> like, to be honest, like, it can be so frustrating having the wrong team or the wrong partners or compromising or even having good people, but they're not like aligned. Um, I'm not ready to like talk about publicly about what we're doing, but you know, we started this company, my co-founder and I, we sat down and, you know, like wrote our values and went through literally every professional experience we've had including startups that we co-founded um, and looked, talked about what we liked, what we didn't like about the culture of the companies. Um, you know, we did, we mapped out our strengths and weaknesses. Like I mapped my own strengths and weaknesses. He added stuff, you know, um, vice versa. Turns out that my strengths are his weaknesses and his weaknesses are my strengths. So, um, like, and vice versa. So it turned out to be a really good match, but we're just very intentional about building the company and also, like, articulating it, articulating the vision and the values and not just sort of leaving so much of that stuff unsaid and unspoken. And I've gotten into a lot of trouble assuming you work with people who I, you know, maybe kind of knew, but didn't know super well. And then assuming that we had the same values and the same perspective or maybe glossing over that, you know, to focus on like the business plan or whatnot and then end up down the road, whether it's six months or two years later, butting heads, realizing we're not on the same page being incredibly frustrated about, you know, that I have different ideas or we have different ideas. And, you know, there's lots of, there's many paths to the top of the mountain. It's not that there's just one way to build a company that's successful, but it is, can be incredibly miserable building a company with someone who doesn't share your values, who doesn't think in the same way you know, that you do. Um, and you can just, you put so much energy into building a company uh, and you put so much of your soul and heart into, at least I do, that if you're not aligned with your partner, um, you are just cruising for an emotional bruising. Um, and I'm so glad that we did the opposite this time and we just, we've been super intentional about it and, you know, on the same page, we have very explicit conversations about things. Any disagreement gets surfaced very early. Um, we, we're honest with each other. We, we speak the truth. And it's just, it's, it's really cool. And it's better and more fun than any business I've ever, not just started, but like worked at, frankly. Like this is my best job I've ever had. And are you familiar with the flow state? Um, the concept like where you're doing something and you're sort of like operating at like your peak capacity and totally, um, 
you know, in the zone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how much of your day would you say that you spend in a flow state compared with this startup versus compared with the last ones? Oh yeah. Way more. Um, I'd say like 80 to 95% in this one. Um, although to be perfectly honest, there's like, I think, I don't think that alignment and co-founder is the only thing. Um, in 2018, I got tested for ADHD and basically my son was having issues in school and they were talking about this and I, I'd heard about it, right? Like everyone hears about this, but I didn't, hadn't really thought about it seriously. And going and taking him to the doctor and hearing them explain how it manifests and I'm listening to them diagnose him and I'm like oh huh okay this sounds very familiar uh these issues oh that happens huh mm. and so I you know the whole time I'm I'm listening to them talk about him and and thinking about him but also thinking about myself and um and so in January 2018, I went, uh, you know, and got tested for ADHD and, you know, scored uh, off the charts or something like that, like very high and did a bunch of things to change my life. Uh, knowing that, you know, and like I turned off all the push notifications on my phone, for example, you know, my Apple watch used to be always buzzing all the time. Um, I used to be constantly like getting distracted going on Reddit and I, you know, worked out of a, you know, I, up until that point, um, I'd been working at Amazon and, you know, that was like a shared office and I just could not focus with all the distraction. So now, you know, um, I don't, I don't have push notifications. I started meditating, prioritizing exercise, you know, um, also quite frankly, like started taking like low dose Adderall, which has been like amazing for me. Like I hear other people talk about negative effects, but for me, it's been like all awesome and I feel so much more productive. Um, and I work from home, so there's not like a gazillion people walking by conversations, etc. I, I control my environment much more. Uh, and so I'm much, it's much, much easier for me to be in a flow state. Whereas in the past, to be honest, like being in a flow state was like, I don't know, like it felt like you ever see, you know, like you hear like yeah, Cro-Magnon man trying to, you know, make a fire, you know, and like trying, trying to rub sticks together. And then like, when you get a little spark, like you have to like, you know, blow, 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 you know, and then like, and you don't know if the, when the fire is going to go out. So you just have to like ride it, you know, as, as, as long as you can. And that's like sort of how my productivity was before. It was very, uh, it was much more came in waves and I didn't have control over it. And now I feel like I'm just can jam on the regular in a way I never could before. That fits my, I, I was 80, I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was, I think 17 and I was on medication for quite a long time. Um, eventually meditation helped me to replace that. Um, and for me, 
I do a lot of these interviews remotely. And if not, when I'm back in San Francisco, I usually have people come to the house. Um, uh, and so I don't, I do most of my work out of, out of my house. Uh, and it has been just like, I, I don't understand how people can go into coffee shops and, and get work done like there. It just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I don't think any of them are productive, but maybe they can be, I don't know, maybe their brains work differently. Um, but it, it brings to mind something I haven't thought about before, which is what is the relationship between remote work and ADHD? Um, and I wonder if anybody has done any sort of, uh, empirical studies on this and whether remote work does help people with ADHD. I'd be very curious about that, but maybe in, in just your anecdotal experience, what, uh, what is the relationship between remote work and ADHD? I mean, I think like working from home where you don't have constant distraction, you know, I mean, look, there's always the, the danger that like you have like beer in the fridge or like, you know, you end up like fucking off and doing something else. Um, so it's different. It's a different kind of danger. It requires a certain level of self-discipline. Um, and I think frankly, motivation, right. Uh, but at the same time, if you're motivated and disciplined, being able to like jam from home without distraction, I've, I've never had a more productive time than the last you know, frankly, 18 months or two years since I, you know, working from home, like after Amazon, you know, it was a really cool office, you know, with like a beautiful view, but it was mostly an open office. And I just, I could not focus. And my boss at the time was all about having people come into the office. And I just was like, I tried to explain to him like, dude, I cannot fucking focus in this place. Mm -hmm. I'm like constantly distracted. Um, and so it made it really hard. Now I also wasn't like, didn't have the ADHD diagnosis and like wasn't treated. So I was, I just felt like a kind of like a failure, quite frankly, cause I just, I'm like looking around other people were able to focus and get stuff done and it seemed like happy and productive, but I wasn't. And I was like, I must suck. Um, so yeah, I, I think if you have ADHD and you're motivated, working from home is really good. If you're not motivated, well, I mean, that's a kind of a working from home might not be as good, but then again, going to the office, you might just fuck around as well. Like, you know, YouTube is available um, and Reddit and Hacker News are available everywhere. So um, there's always a plethora of distractions as long as you're connected to the internet. So I was looking at your background a little bit and I noticed that you did a few things which now make a lot of sense to me at least. And I'd be curious to hear what your, what your opinion on is um, you were a fire jumper, I believe that's what, what it said. And you were also a, a paramedic or you were, you were in an ambulance or something like that. And those seem like they're high rush kind of like environments where there's always stimuli coming at you. Uh, do you think you chose those like subconsciously because of the, that factor? Um, I'd say it's, it's contributing. So I, I worked as an EMT uh, on a 911 ambulance in South Central Los Angeles. Um, I fought forest fires for the U.S. Forest Service uh, for three seasons. And my last season, I was on a, a hotshot crew uh, called the MODOK Interagency Hotshots. We traveled all around um, the country fighting big, crazy fires. And then for about five or six years, I worked as a 911 paramedic in New York City. Um, so 
but actually, if I'm like being really honest, you know, growing up, my mom, uh, my mom's bipolar. And, you know, for her, she would always talk about how she's very, so she's like a, a Latin immigrant from South America, from Argentina. And she'd always talk about how, you know, got, like her fate was in God's hands and getting out of bed was like, and, you know, just being able to get out of bed was like a successful day for her. And I grew up really terrified that I was going to be like her and have, you know, and end up uh, so fragile, you know, and I think frankly, now I have a more nuanced take on it, you know, I'm, as I'm older and maybe wiser and kind of uh, more, more critical and thoughtful of my parents' relationship. But so I was deathly afraid of this. So I was always putting myself in, because she was also this kind of person, like if there was any stress applied to her, she would kind of collapse. Um, and I, and I was very afraid of, of, of that being my fate. And so I put myself in a lot of very stressful kind of extreme situations as a way of proving to myself that I was not going to be, you know, I wasn't going to suffer the same fate. Um, you know, there's a lots of different variations in sort of mental illness and bipolar disorder and, and what that actually looks like. But growing up, like my model was my mom and you know, I never, I didn't know that like Winston Churchill was bipolar, you know, Steve Jobs is probably bipolar too. And so I just had this one role model that frankly was like pretty negative. She's a good person, like very loving, et cetera. But like, I was always super ambitious. And, and so um, that I think was the, drove me a lot. Now, I think the fact that I ended up really enjoying those activities um, and they played to my, you know, my, my strengths was, you know, I think more the ADHD side. Um, and like, frankly, there's kind of a window, you know, your early 20, your twenties your, your and then like early thirties when like sort of you can become bipolar, I guess, you know, um, and that window is kind of passed for me. And so I've, I feel like I've passed the test and like, you know, I've, I've proven to myself that I am who I want to be. And that's not this like driving insecurity, but for a lot of my twenties, you know, that was a driving insecurity. Um, but at the same time, like, honestly, like I wanted adventure. I wanted excitement. Like my dad was this is, I mean, he just turned 90, but he's this amazing character who grew up in like a one room Adobe hut in New Mexico. And then like, you know, was part of the oppressed underclass of New, you know, New Mexico, the Hispanos as he called them. Um, and, you know, moved to LA when he was 16 because he was like an angry fatherless child who was being oppressed and, you know, he almost shot somebody in the face and he was like, okay, I want to get out of here. You know, I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to kill somebody if I stay in this place. And so he moved to East LA to the projects and like, he was a, uh, you've seen the movie Wedding Crashers? Yep. Mm -hmm. He was a quinceanera crasher in high school. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, 
And then like he worked pipeline construction. He was like, the military didn't have to like wear a uniform, you know, uh, I don't know how you get that, but he like talked his way out of like having to wear a uniform while in the military during the Korean war. And then like, you know, went to college and community college, then grad school at UCLA and got a PhD and did like crazy shit and like education and activism and, started one of the Chicano studies programs in the country. And then my older brother is like, my oldest brother, you know, he was one of the top rock climbers in the country in the nineties. My other brother dropped out of college to mountain bike over the Andes and through the Amazon. Um, You know, and so this is kind of the, what I grew up with, you know, like my brother telling stories of like getting attacked by killer bees in the Amazon and like, getting, you know, fighting off kidnappers while being, you know, smuggled into Peru, you know, um, and like, so the idea that I would, you know, work on an ambulance in South LA or fight forest fires was like pretty tame, you know, or at least it was like in the normal distribution of my household, uh, you know, if not uh, the normal distribution of everyone else's. Yeah. Uh, the question you bring up about like, cause I, I have it, a lot of other people have it. It's just like, it, for me, it was with both parents, like wanting to be, not be like either of them, um, and kind of overcorrecting to the other side. And it brings in a lot of other stuff of like, it's this cycle of generations where you, where one swings too much to the opposite way and then the other way. And then there's all this random stuff. And I wonder it, it like, it seems like there's an element of progress in there as well, because it, it also seems that it'll let just like a generational level, each generation that comes essentially fight back, fights against the tradition that has been imposed on them by the generation previous to them, and then eventually becomes the new tradition uh, and then gets fought back by their kids. Um, what do you think about that whole cycle? That wasn't me. Like I, I grew up pretty much idolizing my father. And, um, you know, actually the there's a book that I read when I was, 19 and I was living in Montana. Uh, it was my first season fighting fire for the forest service. And uh, it's called lonesome dove. And there's this quote that opens the book. And it's something like what our fathers lived. We dream what we live. They dreamed, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think, you know, for me, I, I grew up with all these stories and I wanted my life to be as interesting and cool as my dad's. Um, and, you know, I think he did all this stuff so he could have, you know, like the educational and material advantages that we did. Like it was like, a, we grew up in like a very middle class. He was a community college professor. My mom didn't work. Like it was not, you know, we generally had more education and less money than the people around us. But, um, you know, but compared to, you know, growing up, being born in 1929 in a one-room dirt floor adobe hut in New Mexico when his father had died before he was born, uh, we're dramatically, dramatically better off mm. um, than, than him. And so, yeah, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't reacting against. I was more, frankly, wanting to keep up with um him and what what he'd done um and so 
going back to the ADHD thing, what, like, if you were to describe what goes on in your brain as you're experiencing ADHD, recognizing that that might be a difficult thing because it's very intimate to you. And so it's very difficult to like extrapolate out, but how would you explain it to another person, what it means to have ADHD or what it feels like, or even maybe what is the emotional flavor of ADHD? And if you want me to explain that term, I can explain it. Um, yeah, I don't know how other people's brains work. Um, I see, like, I come up with lots of ideas all the time. Um, sometimes they're fucking crazy. Uh, sometimes they're funny and uh, adolescent. Um, like the 15 year old boy is still strong in me, I'd say. Um, but for me, like idea generation has never been a problem at all. Mm -hmm. um, I have way more ideas than I can possibly act on. And one of my things, you know, uh, I'd say one of my challenges and things that like, I think I've gotten better at. I mean, honestly though, I've actually been pretty good at it. I've always had lots of ideas. I'm just choosing amongst the different ideas and cool concepts I have um, and things I want to do and things I get excited by uh, has been the thing that, you know, is the, the big challenge for me and like staying focused. Um, like I have a, you know, I love, one of the things I love about being an entrepreneur is that I always feel like I'm at the steep edge of the learning curve. You know, I think there's some entrepreneurs who've done, you know, kind of one version of the same thing over and over and over again for their career. I am definitely not, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I've, I, you know, in 2008, when I started my first company, I was still working, you know, as a paramedic in New York City, uh, freelancing as a journalist for the New York Times, you know, had no idea what the hell I was doing, ended up, you know, building a crowdsourced video transcription service, you know, with a bunch of like AI that would manage it, manage them. Then I started an on-demand booze delivery company. That I started that turned into like a weekly grocery delivery company. Um, I had a bunch of other random projects that went nowhere um, or false starts. And I'm starting a company called Dishcraft Robotics that makes dishwashing robots for restaurants that we sell as a service um, that's done really well. And, you know, like at the time, what business did I have like building a hardware company like a robot like a legit robot robotics company like most of the stuff i've done like i've been completely unqualified to do um and actually going back to kind of the beginning of our conversation one of the values of our company and the main thing we look for when we hire people is intellectual fearlessness you know what we we actively look for people who've done things that they're on paper, completely unqualified to do. Like people who've punched above their weight class. Um, Cause I think, you know, that's many of the, the best and most creative minds, they don't, you know, they, they do shit that they shouldn't be able to do on paper, but they figure it out and they go for it. And, you know, I think one of the things that a lot of 
Silicon Valley companies, I think rightly get dinged for, you know, is kind of the monoculture and, you know, okay, well, we're just looking for people from like uh, MIT, CMU, Berkeley, whatever, whatever. Um, And, you know, I always look for who's the person that punched above their weight class that didn't, okay, maybe they didn't, they had lots of, you know, they didn't have many advantages growing up or they had some actually important disadvantages. I actually look for the delta between what someone sort of like station and, you know, assume station in life is going to be based on where they grow up or like their, their sort of like birth conditions as it were um, or educational level or whatever. And then how much did they, you know, what was the delta between what was expected of them versus what they did? And the greater the delta, to me, that's the bigger indicator of talent. Like someone who's smart but grew up in like a wealthy Northeast family, went to the best private schools, went to, you know, the best college, you know, then got a job at Google. That person's probably smart, um, but they didn't, you know, the delta between what was expected of them and what they accomplished was like pretty low. And the best people are outliers. The best people break the pattern. And that's what I look for. And, and that's, you know, we're all, I think, biased um, in sort of a narcissistic way to look for people who look like us. And so that's my bias is I always look for people who've broken, you know, like people like my dad, you know, like who just complete outliers, you know, punched way above his weight class. Um, And those are the people I admire the most. Those are people I I love hanging out with and and working with, you know, and, and having the frankly privilege of employing you know, that's, those are the best people in my, in my opinion. And what, why, why do those outlet, like, why did somebody like your dad figure out a way? I, I'll, I'll give an example because I found somebody here in Medellin who grew up like in absolute poverty and then uh, was selling empanadas just to survive. And then he eventually like uh, got this scholarship for an American university and it was one of the first scholarships in Columbia and then made his way to uh, that university, learned English there. Um, and just like through this one stroke of luck, like ha- had this whole like pathway that opened up to him, uh, which then he, then he, it sounds sound very similar to your father's story, actually, like um, created a huge social, social health pro- program in Massachusetts that ended up being one of the largest in the country and like did all these other things to, to help people that were in the type of poverty that he was in when he was in Columbia. It's just like, it seems almost like magical somehow, the set of conditions that allow, because like most people don't do that. Like most of the people in Colombia like are just, are stuck in this cycle of poverty and there is no way to escape. Why is it that some are lucky and others are not, or some are, have this kind of motivation to get out? Um, I don't pretend to have like the entire answer to that. I don't, I don't know. Um. I speculate and I believe that it's some combination of luck. Like luck is very real. Um, it's a very real aspect. And, you know, I think another part though, 
and winning the genetic lottery in terms of like the specific DNA you get is part of luck, right? Um, but I also think at the end of the day, it boils down to self-belief. And if you believe that you deserve more than what the world has handed you, and you believe in yourself enough that you're willing that like you can you deserve better than that and you can do more um then like that's prerequisite to breaking the pattern right and actually that's a lot of what my father worked on um you know he in like the late 70s uh in the 70s and and 80s probably in the 60s too i mean i wasn't around for it but um a lot of what he did was work on self-esteem and self-image uh and he did it in the in the chicano context you know he was a, a community college professor in east l.a at east l.a community college and you know primarily serving you know um immigrants you know and and, and poor people you know he, he had a program where he taught ex-convicts how to read and his whole thing was all about making, you know, helping people improve their self-image and their self-belief because he taught anatomy and physiology, which was like a weeder course for, you know, jobs in the, uh, in healthcare and life sciences, right? Like you can't be a nurse, you can't be a doctor, you can't be a physician's assistant unless you pass anatomy and physiology. And he was not, a softy, um, you know, he's, he's like an old school, like, you know, uh, liberal, but he's not a softy. So he was never going to like lower his standards. And so what he did is he tried to, as he would put it, brainwash people, um, to believe in themselves that they could do this hard thing that was hard and that they had a lot of self doubt about. You know, that triggered a lot of self-doubt. Um, and anytime you do something that you suck at, you doubt yourself. And most of the things that you do that are new, you're going to suck at in the beginning. Um, and he saw overcoming, overcoming that, you know, um, was if you could do something hard and succeed, that was the foundation of self-belief and i i internalize that on a pretty deep level like you have to believe in yourself and i think like you know they now call it growth mindset you know like um that's that's so important um you know and i think that's that's part of it you know i do think there is some people for reasons that I can't explain, have an ambition uh, and a drive that is incredibly powerful. And they do stuff that, you know, it's not just, okay, I can do something that like, I will, I must. Um, I don't know where that comes from exactly, but I think it's, it's a ambition plus self-belief. Um, is the magic formula, you know, uh, plus, you know, I think plus like some degree of risk taking, right? Um, if you 
if you want to punch above your weight class, if you want to outperform your circumstances of birth, there's no safe path for you. Mm -hmm. like, like there is no safety. And you have to be willing to take risks, intellectual, emotional, often financial, um, to be able to achieve what you believe you deserve. Um, and and I, I see that a lot, you know, I think uh, in a lot of ways, my dad was a risk taker, even though not financially, like he was a, a union, you know, like community college professor, worked in union, he didn't, you know, he was never a big financial risk taker. Um, but then again, you know, he was a depression baby. So uh, different perspective there. So did you, and what about the importance of role models? Did your father have any role models that ever, that kind of showed him a way out or had any specific influences uh, towards kind of opening up that self-belief in his head? Um, kind of. Um, to be honest, like his father died before he was born. Um, he, his uncle Dan was blind. He'd been playing with dynamite as a kid and, and uh, blinded him. Um, and he would take care of him and then, you know, I guess my, his grandpa, my great grandpa was like, literally like a Papalino. He was like an old school cowboy, you know, like who had like done cattle drives, you know, from like Texas to Chicago. Um, but other than that, like, you know, I think he had like an abusive stepfather who was tough as nails and he tells stories of uh you know they end up escaping in the middle of the night you know on a train uh from this guy but you know they would he this is like old school grandpa talk but he would talk about you know they would buy shotgun shells on credit from the general store and then shoot blackbirds and then he was like six or seven years old and there was like uh, they lived in oklahoma in uh in a town that's now like the biggest super fun site in the United States was like a, the guy was a lead and zinc miner, mm. uh, you know, a lead miner. If you can think of like one of the worst jobs possible. Mm. And, um, and during the winter they would sometimes shoot a bird and it would land in like one of the, the scum ponds. Uh, and then they'd strip naked and have to like break through the ice to go fish out the, mm. this like blackbird or a crow or something like that, which is like, in order pretty epic. what's in order, that in order to eat it yeah because that was dinner that was like the only thing they could do and and so i mean i don't know my dad talks about how that's the guy who like taught him to be a man taught him to be tough um so there those are role models but i don't know my I, he's an outlier like he you know he existed he went to ucla before there was affirmative action, right? Like I looked at his yearbook from like 1962 or something like that. It's like him and a black guy. They were like the only two brown people in the entire graduating class. Like that's it. There was nobody else. Um, and it's not clear to me that he had, you know, he didn't have a father. He was the man of the house, you know, and like sort of Latin culture, um, you know, the eldest male becomes the man of the house. And so, Maybe it was some of that. I don't know. He's a, but he's an outlier. He 
statistically he shouldn't exist, right? But he did, and he does, and he's amazing. This is the thing for me because I've never experienced it. Uh, is this kind of intense poverty? I'm I'm around it a lot more here in Colombia than I would be in in the U.S. Although in San Francisco, there's its own type of uh, extreme poverty. Um, but it's just like all of the attention for most people goes towards as individuals mostly goes towards the rich and successful. And like, we know who they are. Um, and then, but in, when it comes to poor individuals as statistics, we pay attention a lot to them, but as like individuals, we don't pay that much attention to them. And we just, or I don't know what it's like to grow up and actually have like absolutely nothing and have to go shoot blackbirds in order to eat. Um, and just like that, experience is such a different experience than uh what i grew up with i don't really have a question here but it's just, it's, it's been on my mind a lot since i've been in columbia um and and after interviewing this guy who who made it out because his story was 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 very challenging and it's like then that's that's most people's experience on the planet it's like is that um but then all the attention goes to the story of the individuals who have power and money and all this other things what do you what do you think about well, that uh, I mean, I, I think, and I, I learned this lesson fighting forest fires. The thing that makes humans unique amongst all creatures on earth is our ability to adapt to like basically any situation, right? And, you know, on one level, it's like what underlies the hedonic treadmill of like the more stuff you have, the more success you have, you know, like you just very quickly get accustomed to it. Um, and so it's the hedonic treadmill is oftentimes seen as like a bad thing, right? Like you get more material goods, your happiness increases temporarily, and then it goes back to your baseline happiness. Um, but I think the, the reverse is also true. If you grow up like dirt poor, and especially if everyone around you is also dirt poor, then it's normal, right? Like, you grow like sometimes people ask like, "Oh, what was it like growing up bipolar mom or something?" I'm like, oh, "She's my mom," you know. Like it was, it was like I didn't, I don't have any frame of reference, you know, that's different. Um, and I think humans, everything, anything we can, anything can become normalized, right? Like think of the people who like went through, you know, like Dachau and like the Nazi concentration camps. It became normal, and they survived, and it's unconceivable inconceivable to to people living in modern america with its comforts and whatnot but like those were like not extraordinary people going into those situations right like they were just like normal people that got flung into something fucking crazy uh a lot an incredible amount of them died but many of them survived and you know got through it and it was traumatic but they were able to like you know, wake up every day and put one foot in front of the other. Um, and so I think in my research on the subject, people mostly, like if people, if you're exposed to people who are in the same economic situation as you, uh, primarily, like you don't complain, you know, it's, it's very normal. Um, it's only when you get exposed to vast differences in wealth you know, and material comfort that you get uh, mm. angry and upset and it becomes, the poverty of your situation becomes uh, apparent and you become resentful. Um, 
And for me, my personal experience with this that has been burned in my mind um, was I was fighting forest fires on this hotshot crew and we were in north central Washington in a town called Leavenworth on this big crazy fire. And I remember we got there and the first night we didn't, you know, like you just camp out everywhere. And there was like this big meadow in the middle of this canyon or the valley. And I was like, oh yeah. And it was like fluffy grass. <laughs> yes. I'm going to sleep on like soft grass. It's going to be so nice. And the, the crew superintendent, the crew boss, Greg Keller was like, all right, men, yeah, it's too noisy in the meadow here. We're going to go, uh, found a spot. We're going to go to the gravel pit. <laughs> the gravel pit? Like, you know, and I was at least thinking like, it'd be like little small gravel, but no, it was actually like a, a mining quarry. It was like a rock quarry. So there was just like big fucking rocks that were like, I don't know, like chew sized rocks. And so I slept on rocks for like three or four nights. And I remember just laying there being so fucking miserable, being like, why the fuck am I sleeping on rocks? This is so, you know, I can have a little therm, like half inch thermal rest. But other than that, like you're sleeping on fucking rocks. And then it was the fourth or fifth night. Um, we got reassigned and we got helicoptered into the back country. And I remember that night I laid down in just regular dirt and I fuck you not. It was the most comfortable like night. I like the most comfortable bed I've ever slept on in my entire life. The level of like sheer joy of just sleeping in dirt after sleeping for five nights in a rock quarry, like on rocks was like, made me so happy. And I remember catching myself, you know, I was 24 at the time. Um, maybe I was 23. I remember catching myself being like, oh, mm-hmm. this feels so good. <laughs> and then like 10, 12 seconds later, I was like, dude, you are like having orgasmic sleep here. Like, because you're on dirt. Like, remember this moment. Like, you are so happy right now, and you're not in a bed. You know, you're not in a plush anything. You're just, frankly, it was like some sand. Like, it was like, uh, it was dirt next to a river. And so it was like natural. Uh, I don't know if you know, like, that, like, it's really soft sand that, like, mm-hmm. is next to, like, a river. Yep. And I slept there, and I was just so happy. And I always have tried to remember that moment, you know, and bring back to it like bring myself back to it whenever I like complain or get frustrated with whatever BS, you know, first world problem I'm deal- dealing with because, you know, like we all can adapt. Like that's what, that's what we are. That's what makes us unique. That's why we kind of taken over the world. Um, and anything become, can become normal to basically anybody. And once you realize that, I think it can unlock a lot for you when you realize I will get accustomed to anything because that's kind of what I'm programmed to do as a human being. Um, And so I imagine wherever your circumstances of birth, that's normal to you. And it doesn't feel poor, you know, it doesn't feel weird, um, especially if everyone in, is in your same situation, right? Uh, and I think this is kind of one of the things that's like, you know, special about Silicon Valley 
is you, you know, you kind of come to this place, you end up, if you do it right, you end up with a cohort of entrepreneur friends who are all kind of doing the same thing, you know, all going through the same struggles and everyone else thinks it's crazy, you know, but it's normal amongst your cohort and your peers. Um, and I think, you know, and that makes it a lot easier, even if you don't realize it at the time. Um, and I think that people have it hardest are when the ones that are like alone and they're the only ones doing this thing and they don't have a community they're, 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 they don't have a peer group that's going through the same sort of struggles and experiences, et cetera. And that's actually, I've been finding a lot of those people in Latin America as I've been doing these interviews of people building companies outside of Silicon Valley. And it is really, really difficult, particularly because the, the investment situation, because in, in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, you can find investors who understand what it takes to, to invest in a startup company. But in uh, Latin America, you can find investors who know what it takes to invest in a real estate business or a large commercial enterprise or, or just like things that are not at all applicable to the startups. And also you don't really have a peer of people, although that's becoming more and more uh, common is to find a peer, particularly on the internet. So that, that is, I've been finding a lot of that here, which is interesting. And I think actually like finding your, finding your tribe building community um, is one of the best ways to like manage your mental health. Hmm. And like we as humans are, we're a, we're social animals, we're tribal animals, right? And having people who are going through something similar, whatever you're going through, right? Like that's powerful, that's important, right? In the military, like they don't, they, they don't uh, ever put one man in a foxhole, you know? Like it's always two, mm -hmm. because as long as you have somebody else, you know, then like kind of anything is bearable. Um, especially if you feel bonded to the person and feel like you owe the person something like we're capable of so much, um, you know, so much more than I think any of us thinks we are, you know, so much that's like, so inconceivable to us that we can go through just creating the right circumstances for success. And I believe having peers and having friends with the right people around you, like you can kind of basically do anything because um, people end up enabling each other. And, you know, as much as we might focus on physical discomfort, I think it, all the negatives of any experience are dramatically magnified in, when you're in isolation. So this, right? goes, this goes into something I've been thinking a lot about, which is that our, the species that we descended from were on all fours and their most vulnerable parts of their body, their throat and their bellies were all pointed towards the ground. So meaning that somebody would have to go underneath them in order to attack them. Um, but we as human beings have essentially made it this trade-off where we're now upright and our, our bellies and our most vulnerable parts are now completely out in the open if anybody wants to hurt us. But in exchange, we've essentially, we've built this community and we all, you know, I imagine back in the day we would, would have been around a fire um, and everybody's bellies would have been facing the fire and everybody's minds would be in uh, mouths being pointed towards each other and essentially creating this like circle of people basically. And that really is the uh, benefit, the, the trade-off that we made in order to take off over the world is just like this ability to connect mind with another mind um, and uh, create tools, which then help us take over the world. I think. Yeah. I mean, like 
you know, uh, if you're hunting with a spear, you know, you're, unless it's like for fish or something like that, you're not doing that alone. You know, <laughs> um, like a small group of people can accomplish incredible things, incredible, incredible things, especially when armed with, with modern technology. Hmm. So last five minutes, five or six minutes, uh, I'd like to take, there's one question that came up earlier and it's about tough love. And maybe there's two questions I could ask, like what is your relationship to tough love and what is the relationship between self-belief and tough love? Is tough love an element of self-belief or is it important to have tough, tough love from those around you in order to believe in yourself? Yeah, I mean, in my perspective, uh, you like you give tough love to people that you believe in um and you can accept it if you believe in yourself um if you don't have that if i think it's really hard to have people be tough on you if you don't believe in yourself right and to me the number one value, if the number one thing we look for in, uh, when we attracting talent is intellectual fearlessness, the number one thing I care about inside our company is speaking the truth and being really honest. Um, and you can only be, can only receive difficult truths if they're separate from your self-belief, right? Like, the reason we let and we want people to lie to us is that we think that it will damage our ego. It'll damage our self-belief because our self-belief is frail. Um, but if there's shared trust, if, if I believe in you, if I trust you and you believe in yourself, I can tell you something like, Hey, this thing we thought is working. Yeah, it's wrong. Hey, this assumption we had, yeah, it's completely fucked. Like we can have that conversation. And it's not about attacking you as a person or saying like you suck as a person, but you have to have the confidence and the self belief to separate out your specific performance, your specific ideas from your ego and yourself, you know, and people that are insecure. If you tell them an uncomfortable truth, they'll take that as an, they'll translate that as to I suck. You say, you know, your idea sucks, and then that must mean that I suck. And you're saying I suck, and so I can't accept that. Therefore, I can't accept this, you know, this idea, and then you need to counterattack. Um, you know, and so I think that those two things are, are, are deeply linked. Like, if you, love it, if you love somebody, and if that person loves themselves, you can push them, you can tell them they're wrong, you can speak the truth. But if a person doesn't love themselves and you don't and, and does not feel loved by you, then you're gonna have a very hard time being honest um, because that will automatically trigger, you know, this this autonomic stress response and this fear response. And it's in the conditions of love and self-love and self-belief that we can be the most honest and do the best work of our careers. Because if you don't embrace reality, 
you can't do anything great in this world. You can't do shit that matters mm. unless you embrace the truth wholeheartedly, fearlessly. You can't do anything like not in a startup, maybe in some political environment where it's just about, you know, appeasing some group of people. But when it comes to like actually making something and selling stuff, making something that people who don't know you and don't care about your feelings use and want, you, the, the, the truth has to be the foundation. Um, and so many people, so many companies, so many politicians, so many leaders fail because they don't, no one tells them the truth, you know? Like the truth is like the first thing to go in a hierarchical relationship. You know, like truth decays rapidly in any social structure where the, you know, where there's hierarchy and you want, you know, there's a boss and the more power you get, the more power you accrue, the more important you are, the less truth you get, unless you actively put energy into the system, unless you actively demand it, push for it, it try to expose it you know, surface descent. Um, what's wrong with this idea? You have to be paranoid. The more power you get, the more important you are, the more paranoid you need to be that the truth, you know, that, that, that you're not hearing the truth. Um, yeah, that's one of the, I think, scariest and craziest things about leadership is that you start off and you're a nobody and everyone tells you the truth because you don't matter. And then once you start to matter, then people start lying to you. And you didn't ask for it, probably, you know, but it happens, right? Like you hire people, they don't want to upset you. They don't want to piss off the boss. They don't want to tell the boss that like, well, that idea we had, yeah, it's pretty stupid actually. You know, it's not working, you know, like people try to juke the stats, you know, and then you accrue more power and more success you know, then you have more people who want to kiss your ass, like the supplicancy, you know, like, uh, and lies, that's, that's, in, that's inevitable. Like, that's like, almost like a force, like entropy, unless you apply energy to the system, unless you demand the truth, you will not get it. It will decay around you. Um, and what success you have will probably be, a, have been a result of truth, you know, that was spoken when you didn't matter, you know, like, um, and, um, you know, but invariably the market, you know, reality hits us all. Um, and you know, you can find that the hard way, you know, when your bubble gets, gets burst or you can, you know, uh, find it the also hard, but frankly easier way, uh, over the long term, when the people around you that you surround yourself with speak truth to each other. Hmm. It also could just be like a slow decay into meaninglessness as nobody tells you the truth. Cause you, I'm sure some part of that person who's now has power senses that no one is telling them the truth. Uh, and so it's just kind of meaningless. Like there's nothing real going on basically. Yeah. Um, when I was 25, I had this crazy experience where I won, uh, the biggest journalism award in the country for college students. Hmm. 
and uh, I was I dropped out of Berkeley, and then I was going I was now back just back at school at Columbia, and um, it was just like kind of bonkers, like neoconservative journalism award, mm. and I ended up like on stage with Rupert Murdoch and Roger Ailes, <laughs> uh, which is hilarious, like because I didn't even have like cable TV and like my dad was there and it was, it was another story. But um, I remember this guy, Marty Singerman, who was the guy who ran it and he'd been the publisher of the New York post in the nineties and sort of the, you know, uh, uh, a Lieutenant of Rupert Murdoch. Um, and was there when the Fox news channel was like, getting ideated and created. And, you know, he was a, uh, a mentor to me. I'd never been around people with that kind of, power and privilege like I was working as a ghetto 911 street paramedic in the Bronx you know like in housing projects and whatnot and one of the things that he told me was that people like Rupert Murdoch crave people who tell them the truth Mm -hmm. because it's so rare and that the powerful you know the, the the most powerful people struggle and are always looking for people who be honest with them because it's so rare. And I thought that was interesting. Like I'd never thought of the world from that position of power. I'd, I'd always been in a position of, of weakness, you know, always playing cards, you know, with a weak hand. But I never thought of the world, what it might be like to be in a position of power and do the kind of problems that you have to deal with. Um, and then, you know, in my first startup, you know, we, just, we had like nine, 10, 12, maybe 12 people. And I saw how the truth decayed. I saw how sometimes I'd, run in the, I'd walk to the room and people would be like talking about something like, kind of like be quiet, mm-hmm. you know? And we were doing lots of dumb shit. And not that no one was saying it, but I believe that the people at the front lines had more knowledge and were aware of problems that I only found out later. And I saw that gap starting to form. And it was crazy. Cause like just a year or so before I'd been, you know, three guys in a garage and, you know, like in a, in a crappy apartment someplace. And like the idea, there was no, there was technically hierarchy, but there's no real hierarchy. Right. But I, you know, it was a big lesson for me how quickly, you know, with hierarchy, with power, once like people's salaries are on the line and this and that, like they believe things and they become afraid to tell them to you because they think it might upset you. And then, you know, like their job, might, they might lose a job or something like that or whatever. Um, and, you know, as I've gone and, you know, worked for other people and whatnot, I've, I've seen that myself, you know, um, I even saw it at Amazon, like in 2017, you know, Amazon, I was at Amazon Web Services, AWS. There was this big push for like machine learning and they're behind this framework called MXNet. And they made a big bet on it, but like no one wanted to use it. Like no one was using it. Like Google's TensorFlow had like clearly won the day, but we were like pushing it and pushing it. And it was just like, guys, this is dumb. Like, they, like, like, no one is like, like, almost no one is using this. Like, why are we 
we're supposed to be a customer obsessed organization, but it felt like no one was being honest about the reality, you know, and eventually they figured it out. But I am, I imagine that like Andy Jassy, the guy who's, you know, the CEO of AWS, like no one, it, it just felt like no one was being honest saying like, yeah, we lost this one already. Why are we fighting this fight? You know, like this is just a waste of time and money. And we're like being anti-customer by trying to push this. Um, I want to say garbage. I mean, it might be fine, whatever, but like this thing that they don't want. Um, and a lot of resources and talent was poured into. And it wasn't, it wasn't like it was just like, oh, it was an experiment. We tried, we failed. It was like, it was just very clear on the ground that no one wanted this thing but we were putting tons of effort into pushing it. And I, and I, you know, and I, I, that, that just stuck with me like here in this organization where Amazon is traditional, like very well known as like a pretty ruthless culture. You know, people don't uh, like, you don't worry about hurting each other's feelings. At Amazon, like it's a kind it's a pretty emotionally brutal place to work. <laughs> but even there, there was this fluff of bullshit you know, around this, that all the people, the, all the people who had my job at the front, were like, yeah, no one wants this garbage, you know, but then like, there's all this corporate speak about, you know, and, and pushing it and, you know, and it was, and I was like, kind of the asshole, like being like, Hey, like, what about the fact that like, no one wants this, you know? And, uh, and that was just didn't compute. Um, and I, you know, so whether it's a small startup or, you know, a giant asking company like, you know, Amazon, like the truth can erode and you end up losing a lot of money and making a lot of expensive mistakes and wasting worse your time because like you can get, you know, hopefully you can get more money in the future, but you can't really buy more time. Mm. Um, and you can waste a lot of your life doing dumb shit by not having, you know, a grasp on the truth. Um, and by being surrounded by, people who aren't being honest with you, you know, which ultimately comes down to people not being honest mm -hmm. either with themselves or with you. Mm. Well, cool. This has been an absolute pleasure. How can people find out more about what you're doing um, or about you? Yeah. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Matt Morales, uh, M I R E L E S and Matt with two T's uh, or my website, mattmorales.com. I blog occasionally. I'm mostly on Twitter these days. I rarely check Facebook. Almost very, very rarely check Instagram. Um, that's the main thing. And uh, you know, we'll be talking more about our company and what we're doing in the you know um, probably middle of the year. You probably hear a lot more. But um, yeah, for now, that's probably the best place. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. All right, no problem, dude. Thanks for having me. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll be publishing episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in the morning. If you did enjoy this episode, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, many of the major podcasting platforms, and go ahead and give us a review. And also subscribe. And as always, I'm on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, III. Come join the conversation as we aim towards the truth. And the funny thing about truth is that you can't really put it into words because every time you put the truth into words you create a linear narrative out of something that is non-linear the truth is non-linear it's not it's it's if you really recognize the truth right now 
mind wouldn't know what to do. It'd be overwhelmed by beauty and pain. It's, it's something that is beyond our linguistic capability to represent. But that doesn't mean that the language isn't helpful. Language can point us in the direct, right direction, but it's, it's, not, it's not the truth itself. And so, come join this collective inquiry into the truth. Find me on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, III. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. Share the podcast with your friends. Uh, most people don't have the ability to let go of this linguistic understanding of the way that the world works and just aim for the truth regardless of what the language tells us uh, and so i think what i'm doing with this the show is is necessary for us because as we enter this stage of uncertainty uh, and we are most definitely entering an age of uncertainty and as we do it's really really important that we stop paying attention to what the mind is telling us all the time doesn't mean to say that the mind doesn't have its place. The mind obviously has its place, but it's just one of the senses. It's just one of the tools that we can use. We can use the mind. We can use the feelings. We can use our actual senses. Uh, we can check our intuition with other people because sometimes the intuition tells us the wrong thing as well. Sometimes the intuition is wrong. So it, we can't we can't rely on any one tool to get us there. So come join the show. Find us on iTunes. Find us on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I, uh, and come join the, this inquiry for truth. <laughs>